Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Title for this message will be Obsessed in Obscure. Alternate title was Better Call Saul. Be starting like midway through verse 19. So Saul, Saul has just been radically regenerated, converted uh, by Jesus. He showed up to him on the road to Damascus and he just regained his sight. He took some food, he was strengthened. We pick up midway through verse 19. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are the one that showed up to Saul on the road to Damascus. And you're still the one who shows up and turns us Uh, turns us from being dead in our sins into alive in Christ. You remove the blindness from Saul. And so, Lord, we ask, would you today remove blindness from those who have not known you? God, teach us from Saul's early years in ministry what you would have for us. Lord, would would we treasure you more than ever before? And would we be content with our lot in life knowing that you're our portion? Lord, I just ask that you would help me now to teach faithfully your word. Thank you, Jesus, that, uh, that you are an able savior, that you're able to keep us from stumbling, that you're able to save to the uttermost. Your people need you today. We all need you. So we come under your word and we just ask humbly, meet with us and give us all that we need. I pray this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, the summer after my senior year of high school, I did a program through the church denomination that I grew up in, uh, and the program was called Facing Your Future. It's called Facing Your Future, and it was essentially this. It was like 10 days of like seminary camp 
uh, at Calvin Theological Seminary, then followed by another 10 days of being out and doing uh, some ministry uh, ministry stuff in an urban center. So I was like reading, going into reading philosophy in Platinga and Orberg and the like, and then serving like with Habitat for Humanity and VBS and inner city kind of stuff in Patterson, New Jersey. So it was just like a nerd's dream, right? Like some of you guys are like, that sounds like the worst, but I, I was just loving it. And I was like coming off, I was coming off, I guess what would be like the equivalent of just like mega camp high right? You guys remember, if you went to camp, you're like, man, I will never sin again. And I like love Jesus so much. So I'm just, I'm feeling, I'm feeling just juiced at this time. And on the flight home, uh, I was just feeling destined for greatness, right? The, the entire idea of facing your future was for those considering going into ministry or discerning God's calling on your life. So on my connecting flight from Grand Rapids to Chicago, uh, I was in the terminal and I saw someone who looked kind of familiar. I saw somebody who looked kind of familiar. I'm like, why does that guy look so familiar? And as the guy was walking through the terminal, uh, he, he got pulled aside by different people and they're asking, will you take pictures with me? Uh, and all these different things. So I'm figuring, okay, like I, I know who this guy is. Uh, so I'm not gonna say who it was, all right? Don't ask me after, because I won't tell you. We'll just say like, he was a celebrity, but kind of a B-list celebrity, right? Like I knew him because he was on like a weird reality TV show. Um, and this man is famous for like very evil things. He's famous for very evil, seedy things. So I see him, I recognize who he is. So sure enough, I recognize him and he's actually going back to LA. He's actually going back to LA on the same flight. So he boards, he boards the flight first because he's like, he's B-list, so he's not like first class, but he like got early boarding. So he goes on the flight first uh, and he's kind of towards the end of the plane. I look at my ticket and I've got, I've got one of the higher number aisles way back there. And I'm like, oh, how crazy would that be if I kind of sit close to this guy? Uh, so I start going down and it's just like row after row, I keep getting closer and closer and closer. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sitting right next to this guy. I'm sitting right next to this guy. And he's got like the middle seat and he's kind of a bigger guy. So I'm like, I'm just thinking in my head, I'm imagining, man, I'm going to convert this guy. Like I'm going to convert this guy to Christianity. Um, and I, I could just see him like giving a testimony one day of like, yeah, it was kind of weird. Like I was just sitting next to this kid and he just shared the gospel with me. I just turned to the Lord. So I'm just trying to do everything to set myself up right. So I'm like, hey man, you want to like switch seats? This may be a little more room. He's like, okay, yeah, sure. So uh, switch seats with him and I'm just juiced. I'm just juiced on following Jesus. I was given a book um, and I don't know if like in the early years, you know how every book you get on Christianity is like the greatest thing, most profound thing you ever read. So looking back, I'm like, yeah, that book was all right. But I'm like, oh, this book is amazing. Um, it's changing my life. A friend gave me a book on the plane, so I kind of got it out on my lap, like showing it off. It's a uh, like Christian book. And, uh, and so I'm trying to make a conversation with him. And like, oh, yeah, I actually saw you on an interview with this guy. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, me and that guy are are good friends. Um, so finally, I'm kind of like opening my book, looking over at him. He goes, oh, is that a, that a good book? And I was like, uh, yeah, actually. And I'm just trying like so hard. It's, it's about God and like Christianity, which is for everybody. And it doesn't matter who you are, right? And I'm just trying to kind of like get everything out there in Jesus. And, um, 
And he's like, oh, cool, is a New York Times bestseller? I'm like, I don't know, yeah, I think so. Um, so he, uh, I'm not totally sure what was going on with him, but uh, he orders a ginger ale once we get into the flight, and he just has the ginger ale on his lap, and then the guy just knocks out, like, knocks out cold. Like, um, <laughs> like probably coming off of something, right, just a crash, just a crash. Uh, so he's got the ginger ale in his lap. I've just tried to share the gospel with him. And he's out so cold that he actually is kind of twitching in his sleep. Um, not sure what's going on, but he's twitching in his sleep and to the point that he actually twitches and just starts spilling his ginger ale all over himself. And it takes about 10 seconds for the guy to wake up. It takes about 10 seconds. He's like, oh, oh, oh. Uh, just spills it all over himself, looks at me and like, well, that was kind of refreshing. I'm like, yeah, oh, you're kind of a weird guy. And <laughs> after that, and then he, and then for the rest of the flight, he was just out. We get into LA. He calls three different girls, just like, hey, baby, what are you doing today? I'm like, ah, oh, man, like, it didn't work. It didn't work, right? I'm juiced on following Jesus, and I'm feeling like destined for greatness, right? Like, Lord, you picked me for such a time as this to go and hear my calling and sit next to this guy. And the guy I'm trying to evangelize, he falls asleep and spills ginger ale all over himself and is just not receptive to the gospel. And I'm wondering, is that, is that ever what it's like for you? Like you're sure, you are sure that God is calling you to greatness and you want to be used by him, but your life, your life just feels like so insignificant, so like un-Instagrammable? <laughs> Is it ever like that for you? Well, in the early years of Paul's ministry, we see a pattern. We see a pattern in the apostle Paul. And I'll use Paul and Saul interchangeably just so we're on the same page, right? Sometimes it's kind of tricky, but uh, Saul gets saved. Um, he goes by both Paul and Saul, but early in the pattern, early in the life of uh, Saul, we see a pattern. So Saul, he's just been radically converted by the appearing of Jesus Christ to him on the road to Damascus. Like this is radical. And please don't let this become common to us, all right? Don't let this be like, oh yeah, like Saul, he's the guy that just got converted. Like here's, here's who Saul is. Everyone's terrified of him. He's a Middle Eastern, zealous, religious extremist bent on killing those whom he thinks are not pleasing to God, right? So everyone's afraid of him at this time. Hey, heck, that's in our country, that's still who we are afraid of today, right? That's still who we're afraid of. And Jesus shows up to him on the road to Damascus and saves him. Now that radical kind of conversion, it's not, it's not necessarily the pattern of all of our lives. We don't, we're not, we weren't at all we weren't all at one time just killing Christians, but early in the life of Paul, we actually are revealed, we actually have revealed to us a pattern for our lives that we can relate to. So two apparently contradictory things come together in the life of Saul. And they're actually revealed to us in what Ananias uh, said and what God told Ananias about Saul. So Ananias, remember, he's the guy that God used to go and pray for Saul and baptize him and everything. And Ananias is like, are you sure, God? Really, Saul? I don't know. He's kind of killing people. And God says, yes, I, I know what I'm doing. Uh, but he says this to Ananias. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Man, he's, he's my chosen instrument and he's gonna carry my name to all of these people. But then the very next sentence is this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God says of Saul, he's my chosen instrument. He's gonna carry my name to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel and, and, and I'm gonna show him how much he must suffer. He will, be, he will be radically obsessed with Christ and called to the greatness of telling all about him. And he will be obscure and he'll suffer much. And these two things, they are inextricably linked together. They are linked together. And today there's a pattern for us. If we have eyes to see, God would show us the way to find our lives by losing them. So let's look at Saul's new obsession. Verse 20. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. So Saul's, he radically converted to Christianity by Jesus and immediately just begins telling everyone about Jesus in the synagogues, in the synagogues, which um, this is kind of interesting. Think about that. The guy, the guy who goes around uh, goes into the houses of Christians and drags them out. He goes back into the houses of Judaism and he starts telling everyone about Jesus. He starts telling everyone about Jesus. The guy who was killing the followers of Jesus, now he can't shut up about Jesus. He's just telling them everywhere. He's telling them about them everywhere, even in the former house that he would worship. In. Uh, but there's two things I want us to notice here. Two things I want us to notice. And the first is this. The gospel... The gospel, what Paul says, the good news of Jesus, it's simple. The gospel is simple. One of the things that Acts does is it pushes us out into mission and into evangelism. When we hear like the stories of our heritage, right? Like, oh man, Paul told everybody about them. I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. Like I was saved by Jesus. I'm supposed to tell other people about Jesus too. But how many of us, how many of us just feel so inadequate in evangelism? Like how many of us just feel like, I, I don't know how to do that. Look, I literally read systematic theologies for fun. Like that's my hobby. And I feel like, and I find myself saying, ah, I don't really know if I can explain this to my neighbor. Like what if they say this? And what if they do that? Like how many of us feel like, oh, I don't know. What if I don't have all the answers? But what we see in Saul's proclamation of Jesus is that the gospel is simple. You can, you can share it with your neighbor. You can share it with your neighbor. What, what does Paul say? Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God, right? Sometimes we think, oh, there's 10 million things I have to establish first. And what do we do in this postmodern culture? And what is our authority? And what do people believe? Man, he just goes out. Jesus is the son of God. And look, the Bible says this. The Bible says it's the fool. It's the fool who says in his heart there is no God, right? We are. All know there is a God. He has made himself known by his attributes. He's made himself known by creation. We know there is a God. 
So people know there is a God, and we go and we tell them, hey, look, Jesus is the Son of God. He died on a cross, he rose from the dead, and now he calls all of us to turn away from our sins and saving ourselves and to trust in him, right? So what does it look like with your neighbor? Man, it might be a weird conversation, but kind of like this. Some point, the conversation gets to, oh, so like you go to church? Yeah, oh, why do you do that? Ah, Jesus is the Son of God. Like Jesus is God wow, that's kind of odd and kind of weird. I, didn't, I never really thought that. I thought I am God. I thought everything is God. But we get to that point, right? And then we get, to, we get to have more conversations about that. But the gospel is simple. The gospel is simple. It's good news that Jesus is the son of God. He came for us. He died for us. He rose from the dead. He's coming again. You can do this. You can do this. Secondly, a mark of salvation is obsession with Jesus. A mark of salvation is obsession with Jesus. Paul says he is the son of God. Uh, we, this, is, this is more and more striking uh, when we get a little glimpse into the former ego of Saul. So Saul talk, talks about himself later and how he thought of himself, both in the book of Philippians and Galatians. So uh, look at Paul's former ego. It kind of comes out a little bit. Like he's, he's been redeemed by God and God's been working on his pride so much, but still look how he talks about himself. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Every time I'm like, really, Paul? But um, <laughs> then he speaks of himself again in Galatians. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that, I, that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He basically says this. He's like, man, I was like LeBron at age 17 entering the NBA. Like I'm better than people twice my age. Side note, thank you, Lord, for bringing LeBron to the Lakers. Amen. Um, but, but when he opens his mouth, when he opens his mouth here and now, there's a singular focus on Jesus, like a singular obsession with him. And the people see this, and, they, and the act says, and all who heard him were amazed. And said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? They're like, man, really? Like, is this guy for real? Like, he was just dragging people out of their houses to have them stoned and killed. And now he's saying this. And I wonder for how many of us, we felt like the Lord has done a real work of grace in our life and then we go back to people that we formerly knew or we go back home and people just doubt it man that that's painful right 
like that hurts. Like you feel this thing of, man, the Lord really has done something in me. And people are like, eh, we'll see. We'll see about that. Uh, when the Lord saved me in college and revealed to me that he had chosen me before the foundation of the world, man, it did such a beautiful work in my heart. But also something it did is, man, I wanted everyone to know I was different, right? I wanted everyone to know that I was different. And it was hard when people like, wouldn't immediately see that, partially because of my own pride. But I just wanted people to hear, hear about how much theology I know. Like, see how I can explain things. Don't you see how I'm different now? And Saul must have been feeling some of these same things. Like, man, I, Jesus appeared to me on the road. But his obsession with Jesus is actually takes him to a better place. Verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't confound them by his own credentials. He didn't, he didn't just destroy them in every theological debate he had with them. That wasn't his methodology. There were no like Saul owns Jewish snowflake YouTube videos, right? There's nothing of that that's going on. He didn't gloat. He didn't just gloat about his understanding of the doctrines of grace to other people. What does the word say? It says he confounded them by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's what confounded them. Not how amazing is Saul, how logical is he, how he can just deconstruct our every criticism. No, just Jesus is the Christ. And they couldn't argue with that. And so we see the beginning of the fulfillment of verse 15. He is my chosen instrument. He will go and tell the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But as we, as we see the beginning of the fulfillment of verse 15, we also see the start of the fulfillment of verse 16. And that Saul is going to be cast into a new kind of obscurity. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, this isn't fiction. I want to constantly remind us of that. Like Luke isn't trying to spice up the narrative. Like, yeah, like Saul got, uh, he got converted. And then like, what happened next? Oh, they had to lower him down through the wall in a basket. No, he's not like trying to spice it up. Like this is what actually happened. So Saul, he's obedient. He's faithful to preach who Jesus is. And what does he get? He gets death threats. He gets death threats. So you you faithfully do what God has called you to do and you get called into your boss's office. You, you tell your friend about who Jesus is and the work he's done in your heart and you don't get the invite to the next dinner party. You, you try to raise your kid up in the Lord and they rebel against you. You miss out on a promotion because you won't steal or fudge the numbers at work. Verse 15, he is my chosen instrument. Verse 16, I'll show him how much he must suffer. So please know that following Jesus and being obedient to him, it doesn't preclude us from suffering. 
It doesn't. In fact, the Lord Jesus said, you, you will suffer. There's going to be many trials and tribulations. That suffering is God's chosen instrument to wean us from everything but his own loving care. And I also want you to notice in the midst of suffering, I want you to see God's sovereignty over suffering, right? What do the Jews want to do? They want to kill him and just somehow, somehow Saul's friends hear about it and they get him out of there through a basket in a wall. And then he's going to go to Jerusalem later and word's going to get to his friends. Man, isn't that a coincidence? No, God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over suffering. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. And notice what must Saul have been thinking at this time? Man, I'm preaching, I'm preaching Jesus and now I'm out. Like what's going on here? What's going on? But he couldn't see what, what the Lord was doing, that he was going to place him. He, okay, well, okay, Saul, I'm going to take you out of Damascus and I'm going to put you in Jerusalem. Man, I'm going to put you here in Antioch. And then you're going to get shipwrecked a few times. And then you're going to get bit by a snake, right? Over and over. But what is he doing in the process, man? He's spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. God is sovereign over suffering. But this isn't only the suffering that we're kind of accustomed to thinking about. uh, Death threats and loss of power and privilege. But this suffering also comes in terms in the form of obscurity. Obscurity. Something, something really interesting is at play between verse 25 and 26. It says that Saul flees Damascus, and in the next verse, he's just in Jerusalem. But what's not transparent in Acts, we know from the book of Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 1, is that it's a three-year gap between Paul going from Damascus into Jerusalem. That he's in the desert of Arabia for three years. Paul's obscure there. And many of us, many of us, we feel kind of ready, like, yeah, I'm ready to take some shots for the sake of the gospel, right? That's kind of more of our bent, like, yeah, I'll do it for Jesus. But it's actually the thought of being unknown and unimportant in the eyes of others, that's just crushing. Man, I can take a few hits for the gospel, but for no one to think what I do is good and valuable, oh, that's crushing. To be obscure in our society, it's like a death sentence. We think we, and that's because partially, we think of being a Christian in terms of doing something huge and fast and significant for God, right? That's what it is to be a Christian, to do something huge and fast and significant for God. But I think that has to do more with like Hollywood fame dynamics and like scriptural faith ones, to do something huge and amazing and epic for God. And God actually has a history of leading people to unseen years of obscurity. He has a history of dealing with people like this. It was decades that Joseph was in prison after being wrongly accused before he ascended to the second place in all of Egypt. The disciples, they spent spent three years under the teachings of Jesus. David, 
it was like 30 years between David's anointing and his final coronation of actually becoming king. Okay, so what, what do we do with all of this? The fact that we long to do something great and fast and significant for God, and he seems to have a track record of putting his servants into places of obscurity. Um, I always thought that Acts 9, 16, we have that up, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I always kind of read that as if it was a punitive statement. That is, it, it's like a punishment to Saul, right? Like, uh, don't worry, Ananias, I'm gonna show him how much he must suffer. Like, I, he's gonna work off his sins and then like, don't you worry, he'll get his. I kind of always read it as a punitive thing Saul did some bad stuff, so he'll have to pay for it. But in, in meditating on it, thinking on it, that's not the character of our God. God doesn't punish his children. He, he definitely will discipline us for our good. He will do that, but he doesn't afflict us from his heart so we can pay for our sins. So what if God puts us in places of obscurity, unseen, thought of as unimportant by the world to retrain us and give us what we most desperately need. I thought of this quote by J.I. Packer um, in his chapter from Knowing God, the chapter God Unchanging. He's talking about how God dealt with his people, how he dealt with Joseph and David, even Elijah. It's the same as how he deals with us still today. That says this. Still he seeks the fellowship of his people and sends them both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. Still he teaches believers to value his promised gifts by making them wait for those gifts and compelling them to pray persistently for them before he bestows them. So we read of God dealing with his people in the scripture record, and so he deals with them still. His aims and principles of action remain consistent. He does not at any time act out of character. Our ways, we know, are pathetically inconstant, but not God's. And so it also made me think of another quote, this time by Zach Eswine, he says this. Therefore, those of you searching for something larger, faster, and more significant, who feel that if you could just be somewhere else doing something else as somebody else, then your life would really matter, Jesus has come to confound you. I'm referring to the discontented who have not yet learned what it means that Jesus is our portion and that he is enough for us. God is always wise and he's not far off and he's doing something so deep in us in the seasons of waiting he'll put us in. Jesus is our portion and he is is enough for you wherever you are. 
And so he's saying from the scriptures today that be, if you would be obsessed with him, if you would find your joy in him in obscurity, man, he would be so pleased. He is well pleased that he wants you to find that you have all that you need already in him. That God has decided where you are in the situations you're in and that you can please him today. Like you can actually be pleasing to God today. And theologically, we know you by faith are already justified and right in his sight. So we're not talking about earning our salvation from God, but resting in a place of peace in Christ, knowing Jesus is my portion. And God's not looking for me to be everything to everyone everywhere. He's called me to be where I am, and that pleases him today. So it's pleasing to God for a mother to raise up children through countless unseen daily struggles and hardships and find that her portion is in Jesus. That is pleasing to God. And God, God delights when his son or daughter, just sick of being single, brings it to him as an offering and says, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. Like I asked for a spouse, but you know what? I'm gonna give this to you as an offering and I want to serve you in this. He's pleased with that. And it's enough for you to work a seemingly insignificant job to the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor. It's greatness in the eyes of Jesus to serve in unseen places. I think of, uh, I think of when um, I was just serving with a youth, just a youth leader, and uh, someone had asked me if I would uh, not go on a vacation to run youth for the week. And I was like, seriously? Like, the kids can't, like, just take a week off? Like, that, like <laughs> we can't do that? Um, and it, it, it wasn't unreasonableness. It was actually something the Lord was doing. Uh, but he ministered to me deeply when I was just telling him, like, Lord, this is so insignificant. This is two nights of youth this week, and you want me to, to give up something to do that? And I, I even let you in, bad, not great characteristic for an upcoming youth pastor, but I told him, like, Lord, nobody cares about these sheep. Like, nobody cares about them. They'll be fine. Like, whatever, they'll play Fortnite all night and they'll have a better time. Like, but Jesus, man, he spoke to my heart and he said, I care about them. Like, what if I care about those sheep? And what if, what if I want you to do that and that would be so great in my eyes? And man, it's like, okay, well, that's, if it's great in your eyes, then that's enough. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It's greatness in the eyes of Jesus to serve in unseen places. The greatest moments I've ever had with the Lord took place in my random years of working at Revive Health as an operations assistant. Man, just like nobody knew what I was doing. 
And it was hard day after day. And I found, rather Jesus found me there and he just satisfied me. And man, I treasure those years. So Saul's gonna walk through life with these two things in tandem, obsess and obscure. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, after three years, mind you, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So it's three years sitting at the feet of Jesus, content with him in the small sphere that God has him in. After that, he goes to Jerusalem. And what does he face? What does he face? More suffering. He gets back there and they're like, nah, we still don't think you're legit. It's like, oh, really guys? Like I've been studying for three years, come on. No, we don't, we don't believe you've changed. But he's able to walk through it. And Barnabas, Barnabas, he grabs him and he vouches for him. He's like, no, no, guys, this guy loves Jesus. And I think for all of us, something the Lord ministered to me is that that's really all that matters for us in sticking our necks out for people, right? There's gonna be some people in this church that look so different than you that have such radically different interests and what matters at the end of the day? Man, do they love Jesus? If they love Jesus, you have more in common with them than if someone had all the same hobbies, went to all the same stores and liked all the same restaurants, right? It's, he loves Jesus. Jesus spoke to Paul, to Saul on the road to Damascus and so now, now Saul's like, man, I'll speak boldly of him wherever I go, wherever I go. We get a summary statement of the church at the time. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So all of this stuff before us, obscurity, obsession, all of it, how do we face, how are we to actually face whatever God puts before us? Obscurity, suffering, good gifts, how, how do we walk through that? Well, I think in the last, last verse, we get these twin concepts, these two things that actually run throughout the entirety of scripture. And the first is the fear of the Lord to walk in the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord, it's one of those things, right? You hear it in a sermon, and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And then you forget the next week. Is that just me? Like I always forget. What is the fear of the Lord exactly? Um, so let's talk about it quickly. Some of us feel crushed by the need of approval from others. Some of us feel crushed by that. We need to be well-liked and well-thought of. And so we're consumed with what we wear 
We're consumed with where we eat and what we post on social media about what we wear and where we eat, right? So of being able to control of how people think about us. That, that is called the fear of man. To be caught up with, man, I need people to be well pleased with me. And if, if my family's pleased with me, I'm okay. If the church thinks I'm doing a good job, I'm okay. If my friends like me, I'm okay. So something like obscurity or someone disliking you because of Jesus, oh, that's terrifying. That's terrifying, right? Like we're like, I'll suffer, I'll do anything, but I can't handle someone being displeased with me. That's the fear of man. The Bible's answer to the fear of man is counterintuitively, it says, don't fear man, but fear the Lord. Don't fear man, but fear the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? It's not simply terror of God. It's not terror and dread of God, but rather it's a right saving awe and reverence of him. There's a beautiful picture that we have in the Bible of understanding the difference between just terror of God and the right saving kind of fear of the Lord. And it's in the book of Jonah. So you guys are really familiar with the book of Jonah, right? Yeah, either because you read it in the Bible or you saw the VeggieTale movie or whatever. Um, so Jonah's like, hey, you go. God says, Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. And he's like, no way, I'm out. Goes the opposite way, gets on a boat. And what happens to the boat? There's a storm. There's a crazy storm. And Jonah tells the sailors, the sailors like, what is going on? Why is this? And Jonah tells the sailors, it's the Lord who made the sea and land. And he sent the storm upon us. And do you know what it says about the sailors? It says, and they were terrified. They were terrified. But once the storm has abated, once it's calmed down, in Jonah 1.16, it says, they greatly feared the Lord. They greatly feared the Lord. At, the, at just the storm, they were absolutely terrified. But once the storm was gone, once they had seen something of the power of God, they greatly feared the Lord. The sailors, they weren't fearing God in a scriptural way when they were terrified of God. But after the storm had come down, they had the right kind of awe and reverence of the kind of God who control all things. The God who has all power. Oh my gosh. That, that puts a sense of awe and fear into my heart the right kind of fear, the kind of, man, when you see, when you see the 60-foot wave coming at you, you're like, I respect the ocean, and I'm not getting towed out in there. It's at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and looking down, I'm going to take a couple steps back, and I'm going to enjoy this, and it's beautiful, but I respect this. That's the right fear of the Lord. To fear God is to have a heart that rightly recognizes God's place and his approval and man's place and their approval. To see that all we really need for joy is God's presence and his approval. And along with the fear of God, we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
And I, I couldn't help but think of 2 Corinthians, which is kind of Paul's most personal letter. It's like pastoral theology laid out there in his letter where he suffered much and he's writing to the church in Corinth. He tells us about suffering and comfort. If you're in a season of suffering, I recommend, man, read through 2 Corinthians because there's so much treasure in there. The very opening, Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort, comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope is for you. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. God would have us walk, th walk through life in the fear of the Lord, saying, man, nothing is more important than God's approval. I struggle with, I care so much what other people think and say about me, but Lord, what you say and what you think about me, it's more important. And as we do so, his Holy Spirit ministers to our hearts because we know God's, God's the most important and all I need is his comfort and his approval and his presence. And do you know what God's so kind to do whenever we put, we recognize in our hearts that he is the one we need? He gives us himself and he gives us his presence and he gives us his comfort. And we walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But from the passage, we're clearly not meant to do that alone. We, we suffer and are comforted by God that we might comfort other people in their sufferings. So as we go into our second set of worship, I want to encourage you, if you have a friend, if you know someone who's suffering and the Lord would have you, man, go and pray for that person. There's something, if God's comforted you in your trials and your afflictions, you know his goodness, he wants you to share that comfort with someone else. He wants, he wants them to be able to see, man, that's what it looks like to fear God in the midst of suffering and trial. He wants us to minister to one another. So we're gonna have communion up front, a reminder of what Christ has done for us, that he doesn't ask us to do something for us before he approves of us, that he's, it's all been provided for him. We'll have the prayer team up front, men and women gifted, anointed in prayer to pray for you. So let's pray and worship our God. Dear Father, thank you that as we fear you, as we put you before all things, that you give us your comfort. You give us the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I just ask that right now for those suffering, for those feeling unseen, feeling in places of obscurity, that they would find their sole obsession in you, Jesus, the one who loved them and gave himself for them. Lord, would we find in you all of our treasure? Would we worship you? Would we comfort one another? Would we walk in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit? And would your church multiply? Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.